4,000 feet uh, speed, uh, 180 knots, one double jingle. It's Natalie Flygirl Kelly, and I'm here with my friend Fly Alyssa. Hey, girl. How are you? I'm so good. Good. So I am very excited about the guest that we're having today. Her name is Heather Lucky Penny, and I met her at Oshkosh last year, I believe, and we chatted on the phone, and I've actually flown in two of her, her airplanes, and she didn't even know it. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So, do you know much about Heather? Um, well, I've done my research a little yeah. bit because I was like, man, she is a total badass. And, I know. Um, yeah. So, I don't even know where to start, really. Um, I don't know where we're basing this conversation, yeah, but yeah. Um, she's known for something pretty major. But, I mean, she has, she's had a record of major things happening in her oh, life. Cool. And, so yeah, she. I'm I'm excited to see what she wants to talk about and see. I know. I yeah. don't even know how I'm going to be able to keep it to under an hour. I mean, I wrote down all these things no, about her you that I want to ask. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So there's just so much information that we can um get from her, and there's so much experience she has that it'll be interesting to see what direction this um this goes. Yeah. I'm very yeah. excited. Me too. I'm going to try to add her to the call. Okay. So hang on. I've got my wine in hand. I'm so ready. Oh, shoot. I don't have any. Well, this is Cockpits and Cocktails, and it's Friday night, so I don't know what you're waiting for. Well, you know what I'm waiting for? I've been eating cupcakes all day. <laughs> so I feel like I don't deserve it. <laughs> I don't deserve the, the wine. I've actually been pretty good, and uh, yeah, so I brought some, some wine to the party. Okay. Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? How are you? I am good. I have loved following you. You have so much Well, I was I I just busted out the wine, and she said she can't have wine because she had cupcakes. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got suckered into a little cupcakery place today, and I was just zoomed in there, and I bought four cupcakes. Did you eat all four? I, yeah, they all look so good. They were all so different. No, I didn't eat all four, but I bought all four, and I couldn't decide on one. I was like, well, I want to try that one, that one, and that one. So I've taken little bites of each one today. <laughs> oh, funny. Yes. See, you know, you're so fortunate that you have the willpower to just try a little bit of each. Me, I'd be like the cookie monster. I have a tremendous amount of willpower. What I'm missing is the won't power. Yeah. I don't have any won't power. That's my problem. <laughs> I know. Well, I kind of deprived myself for a while. And then it's like I just get like, oh, my God, I just got to have some kind of like treat. And then once I taste a little bit of sugar, it's really hard for me to like, back off from it again it's like an you know addiction kind of if you get a little taste of it then you want more i feel like it is i mean well it's an evolutionary addiction right 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 well you look amazing i take a sip of wine and then i drink the whole bottle it's just (laughs) (laughs) so heather have you ever met Alyssa? 
I have not, but I am a huge fangirl. <laughs> That's kind of impressive because I was Googling you today to like figure out all the points we need to talk about. And I'm like, wait a minute, like this is over my head, I think. Um, <laughs> us. And also, um, then when you're, when you popped up on the screen, I was like, wait a minute, she doesn't look like a fighter pilot. <laughs> like she, she doesn't look like she's this, like, I don't know. I, I picture this like air force, like rough and tumble, like grab the bull by the horns woman. I mean, you are, but you're so, well, I'm a washed up husband, really. <laughs> no, you're not. No, not at all. You've done some some really cool things. Um, I was telling Alyssa that I met you at Oshkosh um, last year in person, and you drove me around your little golf cart <laughs> that you had. <laughs> one, and one of the perks. One of the perks. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I think Aaron Miller was the one that introduced us. Is that right? Yes. yes. Oh, She's got so many connections. So alive. Yeah. I just adore her. She is fabulous. She is. She's so friendly and she's always trying to connect me with, with really cool, awesome people and always says such good things about me to them that I really, really appreciate her. She's sweet. She's so sweet. Well, it's true. Everything she says about you is true. I want to talk about the bad stuff. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I want to talk about the bad stuff on here. (laughs) No, we we do that off camera, off video recording. (laughs) Baggage sessions later. Yeah. You know what, Natalie? I just have to say, I have so much admiration for how you have, for everything that you've done since you began flying, how the personal transformation that put you through and how you're trying to spread that love, spread that growth, spread that joy. I mean... What you have done with Fly Girl, the relationships you've built with sporties, how you're touching people's lives, that is badass. Oh, thank you so much. It um, sure is. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm not very good at taking compliments. Someone told me that the other day. And I, thank you. It's hard for me to say thank you. And like, because I think, well, maybe you don't really know me that well. And maybe I'm not that great. But I'm just thank you. So I appreciate it very much. So we have so much to learn from you. And I'm like, I don't know how we're going to keep this under an hour. It's going to be hard because there's so many cool, cool things um, about you and your history. First, I want to say that I have flown. Yes. And you're gorgeous and you're just smart and you're just everything. I can't wait for the video clips from the actual story. Yeah. <laughs> so I have flown in your Stearman. And you're 170. It's 170, right? Yes. Without yes. me. I'm so jealous. <laughs> she has, you have a steerman? Uh-huh. Oh, girl. I'm coming over tomorrow. <laughs> and we're doing It's going to be great. You're welcome. Come on over. <laughs> we just <Yes>. became friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she posted a picture on Instagram of, I think it was the inside of your airplane, your 170. I said, I've in that plane and she was like didn't really know how to respond <laughs> and she was kind of vague she was like yeah it's a great I love 170s I was like no I've been in that plane <laughs> that one yeah and the fact that Kevin took you flying and didn't tell me who knows yeah. you know what's he going on all the good stuff to himself 
Yes, yes, yes. I think he was. I think he was jealous I was going to steal you away. (laughs) All right, Kevin, enough of you. We're going to go girlfriend together. (laughs) (laughs) Next time. We're not allowed at air shows anymore. Like, we're just having our own. Yes, right, right. (laughs) So, cool spot that you had your airplanes at, and that was a a fun little interaction we had on Instagram about that. But tell me, um, introduce yourself, and then tell me, first of all, what you're doing uh, right now. What's your title right now with the Air Force, right? Actually, no. I am and have been uh, a senior research fellow with the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. So um, I am basically a professional geek. All right. Awesome. I do research and I study um, Air Force capabilities, technologies, um, future warfare, and I make recommendations regarding all of the above um, for how we can best pursue and protect uh, our national security in the interests of, of, of our nation. Wow, that sounds really important. <laughs> Over my head. Yeah. Now, what? So tell me about your history. Now, you went to Purdue. Right? You were going to be a literature <laughs> teacher, correct? So I grew up in Nevada. And I went to high school in Colorado. And let's just say my parents and I needed a couple states between us when I went off to college. Um, yeah. You know, and there's a little bit of, there's a little, maybe a little bit of a wild girl. And yeah. um, so I ended up at Purdue University, which um, I have really honestly no idea how I got there. But <laughs> it was, it was fantastic. But I showed up thinking that I was going to be an Air Force ROTC because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And that was like when I first learned that I couldn't be a fighter pilot. My mama had always said, you can be anything you want to be if you try hard enough, study hard, eat your vegetables. And that was the first time I was like, what? Girls can't be fighter pilots? And so my life took a left turn and I went into the humanities and got my degree in literature. And uh, I was still, I still really didn't have any idea what I, wa- what I wanted to do or be when I grew up. Um, I graduated in three years. I still couldn't legally drink. And so I ended up going oh into graduate school there at Purdue. And it was oh, I can't use legally. Legally drink. <laughs> yeah, legally. <laughs> Dad doesn't know about those days. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We, we can only dream, right? Um, and so I was in grad school when I found out that Congress had uh, changed their legislation and opened up combat aviation to women. And so that was when I applied to the Air wow. National Guard to become a fighter pilot and was selected by the DC Air National Guard. And so that's when, again, my life went from left to right. And uh, I went into the Air National Guard, went to pilot training, became a fighter pilot. Now, were you a pilot, were you a pilot before that? Or had you been in aviation before that? Or just been interested in it? You know, yeah, no, actually, I was a pilot. I had my private pilot's license, um, but really was just barely keeping any kind of currency. My, I'm a third-generation pilot. My grandfather was an instructor, a civilian instructor in World War II, flying Stearmans, and my father was a fighter pilot. He went to the Air Force Academy. He was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He flew A-7s in Vietnam, and then when he got out, he flew F-4s in the Reno Guard, and that's how that's really how I, I learned about fighter aviation, the fighter community, and learned about uh, the Air National Guard. It was in your blood. So, yeah. I mean, and that was, I mean, I just wanted to serve my nation, fly these fast jets. And 
be part of the club, be part of the brotherhood. I mean, the, the community is so tight knit. It's, it was just something that I, I just really wanted to do, but it never occurred to me that I had never seen a female fighter. It never occurred to me, never occurred to me that maybe I couldn't fit in. And so I, I had, that was how I, I got the, the hunger for fighter aviation. But my dad, I was very fortunate that uh, my, my parents were able to um, support me and pay for my uh, private pilot certificate. So I got that between the summer of my freshman and sophomore year of college. And then, uh, and then I just flew as much as I could, which really wasn't a whole lot because everyone in college is poor. You know? Yeah, right. But I was able to get involved with um, the aviation school at Purdue University and help them form their first uh, collegiate air racing team to race the Air Race Classic. So we were, I was the co-pilot um, of the very first uh, collegiate air racing team for air, the Air Race Classic. Wow. And now there are so many, there are so many collegiate teams. That's Purdue awesome. has raced a number of times. I'm just, I'm so excited to see what everybody has done with that program since. Yeah. They have a great aviation program, I've heard. I've never actually been there, and the students that have gone to, to that school seem to have really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, every every aviation school, I mean, like, you're flying airplanes. How could right. you not enjoy it? True. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how big or small, it's still amazing, whatever, whatever. You have to fly airplanes, so that's good. Yeah, so... I heard you talk at the uh, Theater in the Woods at Oshkosh, and I'm sure you've done a number of talks on this subject that, of course, we're going to touch on. I'm sure you have to talk about it at every talk that you give. But I think, you know, when I every I knew that you had done this, but every time I hear it and every time I read about it, it just gives me chills and it just brings tears, tears to my eyes because I remember that day so well. So tell me about uh, your role in September 11. Yeah. So, so we talked a little bit about where I, you know, where I came from, what my background was. And uh, so I had gone through pilot training and uh, gone through my F-16 school down at, uh, at Kelly uh, uh, Air National Guard Base, San Antonio, Texas. And I'd just gotten to my fighter unit in the DC Air National Guard. And the way you become a fighter pilot, I mean, it's a long road and it's a hard road. And even when you get to your first operational unit, you still have so much to learn and so many skills to to hone, to achieve. And I had fairly recently, I mean, I got there in January of 01 and I earned my combat mission ready status uh, in March of that year. And we were preparing to go to a deployment operation Northern Watch. It was a standard deployment that uh, the Air Force had been supporting since Operation Desert Storm in 1991, so 10 years of this standard deployment to be able to provide air superiority um, over the skies of the Middle East. We had just gotten back from a uh, from a training exercise in uh, Nevada called Red Flag. You might have seen the Red Flag movie at the IMAX theaters. It's our it's the Air Force's biggest biggest uh, war training exercise that we have. Uh, and oh, I haven't so seen that. I'm going to see that. Oh, it's so cool. That I mean, sounds I amazing. It. I'm nothing special, but yeah. if you go, if you, you know, the IMAX is that they fought, they, you know, they, they, they explain the entire exercise. They follow fighter pilots through and all the, basically the Air Force brings together all the different capabilities that they have. And it is the most strenuous test of how it would be if we were to go to war. And it's basically, it's, it's trying to teach you and harden you uh, how to, um, 
to survive, how to um, achieve your mission objectives, how to integrate with all the other capabilities. It was awesome. I mean, here I am, a brand new fighter pilot. I'm excited about my craft. I've just been qualified. And now we're going to go off to the big war and I'm going to get to drop like, they're not real bombs. I mean, they're inerts, right? Like we don't fly around with explosives mm -hmm. on, but I'm going to have to, you know, fight my way in, find my target, drop my bomb, blaze it in and then switch over to air to air mode and, you know, sanitize your space on the way out and fight my way out. It was good. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds was fun. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we got back on a Saturday and everybody had been putting the hours, spinning up for the deployment, spinning up for the red flag. And so everyone took time off. Uh, we actually got Monday off as a way to be able to, frankly, for me, I had to do my laundry. Mm -hmm. So Tuesday was the first day that we were back in the squadron. And it was min-manning. There was, it was just a skeleton group because everyone, like our part-timers, we're National Guard unit, we have mostly part-timers. They were, went back to their airline jobs, all, you know, a bunch of our full-timers were taking leave to be with their families. So yeah, there weren't that many folks in the squadron. I remember getting up that morning and the sky was just, God, it was that crystal blue that you get in autumn days where there's no humidity in the sky. And it's like, when you look up, the blue is so deep. It feels like you can just see right into space. It's one of those autumn days. Just perfect. Barely, barely a puff of wind. Just, a, just, a, just a side note. I do feel like, and maybe you're, am I right? I feel like pilots really appreciate and notice the sky and clouds more than most people. Yeah. I'm like always looking at it, always amazed by it. And yeah, you remember those days. You remember what it was like when you when you have a day like that i know it's true well because we live in the sky that's yeah that's where our heart is that's where our spirit yeah. is and we're always we're always looking skyward mm -hmm. but i was trapped in a scheduling meeting that morning <laughs> i was like we just got back to the unit we had a bunch of administration and housekeeping to do so we're looking at who's actually available who's in the squadron who has to fly who has check rides and so forth and we only had maybe, you know, a handful of, of pilots in the squadron. So we only had a, a, a three ship that we could send out that morning. Uh, it was called Bully Flight. Uh, we had uh, Lou Shooter Campbell, um, Eric Puck Hagenson, and um, Billy Hutchison. And we were sending them from D.C. down to the Dare County Ranges in North Carolina. They were just going to go do basic surface attack, which is kind of like comfort food for fighter pilots. It's basically like almost like a traffic pattern when you're in the pattern to shoot yeah. a touch and go. But instead of diving down and doing a touch and go, you dive down and drop a bomb and then you climb right back up. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. So much, it's, yeah. It's so much fun. Fun. We, Yeah. We, we've got a standing bet. It's a quarter bet. Like, so the best bomb, the best bomb of that pass takes everyone else's quarters. You know, I mean, I know a quarter can't buy you much, but, um, but it can't buy you bragging rights. Yeah. I was wishing I could go down with those guys. So I'm sitting in this meeting and we get a knock on the door and one of our enlisted troops, um, uh, David Chunks Callahan, opens up the door and says, an airplane just flew into the World Trade Center. And we like looked at each other and we're like, how did that happen? Right. Because like flying into the Trade Center, we, we assumed like it had to be a bug smasher do, doing maybe something down the Hudson because New York really isn't that far away as the bird flies. So it's not like it's a different weather pattern yeah and so we, we looked and we're like 
wow, how did they screw that up? And we're just like, made a couple of jokes about sweeping up the debris at the, you know, on the, on the sidewalk, little Cessnas, they bounce off at buildings. They don't really cause any problems. And we just went back to work. And it wasn't until he came back the second time and knocked on the door and said, a second aircraft threw into the second World Trade Center. It was on purpose. Mm -hmm. They were like, this is different. See, he never said airliner. When he said it was on purpose, we all just got up and we walked out of the out of the meeting and we went to the bar where the TV was. Mm-hmm. And that was where we saw what everyone else that morning was seeing. Yeah. And we knew we needed to get airborne. We knew we had to protect. But the challenge was that, I mean, as I was saying before, like when we went down to Red Flag, we don't fly around with live missiles. We don't fly around with live bombs. I mean, we have training ordinance, right? I mean... The bullies, the, the, the three ships that we sent down to Air Force Air, the little bombs they were planking off are like these 33-pound practice bombs with a little mm-hmm. white phosphorus part just poof, so you can see where it hits. Yeah. We don't, we don't fly around with ordnance. And the other thing, too, is that, I mean, our nation is controlled, our nation's military is controlled by our civilian leaders, mm-hmm. by the Constitution, and that's how it's meant to be. And so... We had two problems that day. We had to get ordinance on our jets, and we had to get the authorization to launch. Mm. Because we knew we had to get airborne. Yeah. But, but we needed orders. We needed the authorization. So, I mean, as, as, and remember, I'm like, I'm a young lieutenant. I'm, I haven't even been in the squadron for a year. Yeah. So I'm back from my first real big exercise. And, like, what can we do? So I immediately um, was tasked with going and uh, getting our lineup cards, our takeoff and landing data, putting together maps, filling what we call our, our, our data transfer cartridges or DTCs. They're basically kind of like a little bigger than the size of a brick, but it's like a thumb drive for your jet, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But and were you, in, you were in Washington, D.C. area yes. right now? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Andrews, Andrews Air Force Base. Okay. Air Force Base. <laughs> okay. And so we got that done. It was Igor Rasmussen, who was um, a young captain, and he and I, we put that together. We got all the mission materials. We printed out the maps. We printed out our takeoff and landing data, weight and balance, and all that sort of stuff. Like standard things that all pilots need to have, plus the stuff that, that we need for fighter pilots. And went, we stood by the ops counter. And that's really where our leadership was trying to make things happen to help get us airborne. Our wing commander had come down uh, to our ops building. He's trying to call up through... Our, our chain of command in the National Guard, which in D.C., I mean, we're not a state, right? Most right. National Guard units go through their state. They have a governor who can give them that authorization. Mm-hmm. But as the D- District of Columbia National Guard, the mayor is not our, our commander-in-chief, right? right. Yeah. I, our our chain of civilian chain of command actually goes to the president. And oh. if you can imagine, President Bush was pretty busy at that point. Yeah, yeah. So he's trying to, to push the rope and trying to lead that. Um, our supervisor of flying, who is like the adult supervision for the squadron, he's calling down to the Dare County ranges. He's trying to bring the bullies back home because he knows, they know that, that not only do we need to, to bring those jets back home and those pilots back home, we're going to have to start loading up ordnance. We're going to have to start turning jets. We're going to need people to fill a combat air patrol to protect our nation's capital. So he calls down there and he's bringing him back. Um, our weapons officer, Dan Raisin Kane, an incredible leader. Um, uh, just so much respect for him. He took the initiative on his own to call down to the bomb dump 
where we keep all of our bombs and our missiles. Now, those things don't stay built up. They You keep your fuses separate, your explosives separate, your guidance kit separates and all of that because it just kind of makes sense that, first of all, you can sometimes mix them in different ways. But the more important thing is, is that you don't want those things just sitting on the cell shelves. Right, right, yeah. So, so he's calling down there and telling them, I need you to build up some, some AIM-9 missiles, some heaters, and I need them to be live weapons, which is completely unheard of. I mean, we only build up real live explosives if we're testing them on a very special range down in Florida or if we're going to war. Mm-hmm. And here we are at home in good guy land after a fantastic weekend. And he's saying, load up, like build me some real live missiles. He doesn't have orders. He, I mean, this is the military, the world's largest bureaucracy, right? We don't do anything right. without paperwork. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, it is such a testament to, to Raisin's leadership and his credibility that those guys just started building up the bombs. They start building building up the, the missiles. And then Sass, Mark Sassaville, who was That's our... That's surreal. Mark Sassaville is actually, he's calling over to Andrews Tower to try to reach the president. Because uh, Andrews Tower is where the Secret Service sits when they control the field with Air Force One. Gotcha. Yeah. He's thinking, if I can get a hold of the Secret Service, we can get authorization. Like, they've got they've got a a direct phone line to the president. Maybe we can get everyone that way. Mm -hmm. While all this is going on, the Pentagon gets hit. And we are still waiting. Wow. I, I was... I was so angry and so frustrated. We all were. That you're ready, that you're ready to be called out and you can't do anything. Yes. Yeah. We knew we had to get her. We had to do whatever it took to protect our nation, to protect those innocent lives. I mean, when we take our oath of office as an officer, as an enlisted, I mean, we pledge to give our lives for a nation's defense. Mm-hmm. We know that that's potentially the part that we pay. Yeah. That is never really the plan. I mean, you don't right. do suicide missions. That's never really the plan. But yeah. But the reason why we exist is to serve and protect. Mm-hmm. Now, we had not gotten the missiles yet. It wasn't, it wasn't until just after the Pentagon was hit that Vice President Cheney said, don't they have fighters at Andrews? Someone get them airborne. Yeah. And so the call did actually come through the Secret Service to give us the authorization to launch. So Sass looks at me and goes, Lucky, you're with me. Raisin, you and I go are waiting until you get missiles. Lucky, let's go. Mm. And we ran down to life support. And I just remember, I mean, I'm, I'm so green. I'm like, don't forget anything, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I got my DTC, my helmet, my lineup, you know, my lineup card and my helmet bag, I'm putting on my harness, I'm zipping up my G-suit, and that's when Sass says, I'll take the cockpit. And I knew that I would ram the tail. Gotcha. Because we knew that the and only did you way- know there was another plane at that point, or did you have like any idea that there was another one hijacked at that point? So our intelligence section had actually been working with air traffic control with um, uh, Potomac Tracon, and they had also been working with the FAA to try and track all the airplanes because FAA was grounding everyone at that time. They were bringing everyone and landing everyone down at that time. And at that point in time, there were three planes that they didn't have accountability for. 
Yeah. So we actually thought that there were still three aircraft airborne. Now, retrospectively, it turns out that that's not the case. Um, there, you know, there was some, there were just, you know, there were some inaccuracies in that accountability. But from TRACON, we knew from Potomac that there was one airliner that had begun the hook turnaround over Pennsylvania, and they thought that that was coming down over the river, over the, the Potomac. And so we knew that that was the direction. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, when Dog, Phil Thompson, our, our supervisor of flying, had called for the bullies to come back home, um, as they were landing, it's just when we were getting the authorization to launch. So on my tapes in the jet, after I had you know gotten it all started, on my tapes, I can actually hear Dog saying to the bullies, like, shooter, okay, you know, you don't have enough fuel. Street only had like 600 pounds of fuel. But Billy, who was bully three that day, he had just enough. And so dogs telling Billy, we need you to take off. And you got, you know, you got just enough gas for one pass up and down the river. And so they had landed and Billy does this high speed taxi down Echo. And he takes off on runway from one right. And he heads up the Potomac towards Great Falls, does a turn, comes back down. I mean, he's an afterburner too. He's, and he's low. Because right over the Pentagon, up Great Falls, comes back down, heads south to where the, the Potomac um, hooks right into uh, the Chesapeake, and then he comes back into land. Hi, it's Chuck from Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Join us each week as we talk to glider pilots from all over the world as they share their story and their adventures in the air. You can find us on your favorite podcast app. I hope you join us soon on Soaring the Sky. And we're taxing as Billy's taking off. And Sass just says, we're rolling takeoff. And <laughs> I mean, I had barely gotten the jet started, right? I remember I was I was a young lieutenant. I had never I had not been taught how to scramble an airplane. I had not been taught any of the procedures of a hot start. So I just I and I didn't have time to go through the normal start procedures for an F-16. I mean, it normally this was back before we had GPS in the jet. So we had these really super advanced ring laser gyros for our inertial navigation system. Yeah. And it took a minimum of eight minutes for those ring laser gyros to spin up and give you a stable platform. So okay. as, as I'm taxiing, I don't have an inertial navigation system. I have my jet has no idea where it is. And I turn on the, you know, in-flight alignment and I'm like, I really hope this thing works. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness it wasn't an IFR day, right? Yeah, exactly. Thank right. goodness it was, it was totally VFR. But um, yeah, you know, Sass takes off on one right. I take off, you know, seconds after him, and we head off to the northwest, you know, down low with our radars down, and we're spread wide, and we're burning worms in the ground, searching for, searching for what we later discovered was Flight 93. Mm -hmm. And we never found it. After we pushed out for about 100 miles, we'd sanitized the airspace, and if for some reason we had gone on the wrong axis there was the potential that we could have been flanked. So SAS calls Ranch House and returns us back to, to DC where we continue a combat air patrol. And then over, over the course of that morning, the quits come in, we get the two ship of, uh, of Raisin and Igor. Uh, tanker comes down and hangs out over the Potomac and we started 24 seven operations. But Sass and I never found Flight 93 because, of course, the passengers took down the jet. Yeah. And they yeah. were the crew heroes. 
So were you feeling you were you went into that? There's two two questions I have, two thoughts, you know, because I just had like this um, emergency landing and how much adrenaline was going on in, in me. Were you experiencing that same like super focused, super just hyped in a way? Your everything was like heightened. Your senses are heightened and everything. Did you experience that? Oh, a- absolutely. And people asked it, have asked me, like, was I scared? Was I worried? Was I sad? And I, I honestly, I had no real emotion. Right. I mean, it was, it was very clear that if we were successful, I would not be coming back. And I was good with that. I think I actually, the moment you just kind of, like, go in mode and, like, you're on this mission, and especially since you just got back from that training, you were probably just, like, zoned yeah. in on the mission. Absolutely. and this is what you were put out there to do. It just happened to be you. Alyssa, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, there's nothing special about me. There really is. And actually is retrospectively, when I look back, that's, what's so amazing, not about my story, but the fact that anybody, any one of us would have done the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. No questions asked. Yeah. So when you went up, just so people understand, you did not, you and your, um, I don't know, the other pilot and the other plane did not have any weapons. So you knew you were going to have to basically run into the airplane, the airliner, if you, if you saw it, if you found it. That's correct. We had no live missiles. Um, We had, between the two of us, um, we each had 105 bullets but these weren't high explosive incendiary rounds that we take to war. They were just like lead nose training bolts that we strafed the rag with on the range down at the Dare County. Yeah. So that would not have been sufficient to bring down the airliner. We mm-hmm. were on a one-way suicide kamikaze mission. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it must have been, um, you know, I mean, that movie, uh, United 93, and when you read about it, I mean, that's emotional for me. That must be really... Uh, emotional for you too because you were trying you know so hard to to find that that jet and hopefully do something you know and try to I don't know what that what that would feel like to to know did you ever have you visited Shanksville since so I've not it's actually on my list of things to do um I've seen Shanksville from the air I was uh I was co-piloting a b-17 and I looked down out the window and there was this circular monument, right? And I'm looking close and I'm looking close and I look at my chart and I look down and went, oh. oh. So in the, the day after, the yeah. week after, I mean, America was feeling a lot of heavy weight on our shoulders. Like, what were your feelings after that? Like, was it relief? Was it like just sadness for our country? Like, I'm sure you were processing the same things we all were, but somehow more connected in that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I didn't really process my emotions until, well, well over a decade later, because we were immediately in go mode. We were immediately, I mean, that would, I, I, Sass and I flew a four and a half hour mission that morning. We landed and then we took off and flew another four and a half mission, four and a half hours um, later that day. And so, I mean, we were we were airborne a lot that day because we just didn't have enough pilots. And our sister squadron, the 201st, they had a 727 they used for a DV airlift um, to, to fly around uh, VIPs. They actually went on a round robin 
as a military aircraft going across the nation, picking up all our airline pilots that had gone on trips. And so, because we needed people, we needed, we needed to be able to man our combat air patrol. And we had, we held a 24 seven presence over DC, just the, just the DC Air National Guard, plus other units that came in to add additional uh, defense in depth. We just, we were in go mode. I didn't yeah. think about it. You I didn't was just time to that you were in it. Yeah, exactly. I, I do I think, think like, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, the, you know, you hear about um, Beamer. What was his first name? Yes. And, you know, they had heard kind of what had happened and decided, made a decision that they were not going to let this jet, you know, go into Washington, D.C. And I feel pretty confident that if the others had known, you know, the ones that went into the World Trade Centers, if they had known those people would have probably done the same thing, anything they could have to keep it from hurting other people, you know, and um, there's just it just gives me chills to know so many people, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in America, I feel like we all respect and, and appreciate life and think that it's valuable. And it's just, it's just awesome, you know, that people will do that for one another. And do that for one another and do that for our nation, right? I mean, we talk about, for example, the World War II generation as the greatest generation because every single American in World War II gave something for their country. If they were on the home front, they sacrificed, they worked. Did you know that more Americans were killed building our planes, our tanks, our ships than we lost in actual combat during the course of World War II? That's crazy. Think about how strong America has to be to be able to do that. And it didn't, I mean, our soldiers, our pilots, our sailors, our Marines, that, that fought in World War II, they were just average, ordinary Americans. They were everyday Americans. They were the kid at the soda pop counter. They worked at the hardware store. They were an accountant. They were an executive. They were a taxi driver. They were a teacher. It didn't matter what you did in civilian life. You still had something that you could give to our nation. Right. And you were willing to sacrifice it all for what it means to be American. And, the, and our unique way of life. And we talk about our greatest generation like it's something dead, like it's something past, like it's something that's over and untouchable. But in reality, when I think about 9-11, I think about Todd Beamer, I think about the passengers on Flight 93. That actually makes me hopeful, especially today when our nation needs to come together so much. It makes me hopeful because you begin to realize that the greatest generation wasn't the last greatest generation. Right. That that sense of duty, that sense fight. of sacrifice, it is in each and every one of us. And it still exists today. I wish that instead of piping into the cable TV news shows and the super partisan conversations and the hyper curated social media, that instead of instead of piping into that, I wish we would dig deep down inside of ourselves and reconnect with what it means to be American. And I know our nation is flawed. We are not perfect. There is so much more that we have yet to address, um, so many challenges and things that we need to fix so that our nation can become the ideal that we believe it is, that it should be, but at least we have that ideal. Right. Yeah. It's messy and we're struggling for it, but we can get there. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, we're a nation made up of people. So people aren't perfect. So it's it's always going to yeah. be something that we need to work on, you know? We're, I mean, we're never going to have everything figured out. We just have to keep working on it. But we're trying, you know? Right. We, got, we got the good intent. We're trying. We're trying right. to make it happen. And that right. struggle and that journey in and of itself is worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, okay. So you have, I mean, we all have our own connection to 9-11, I think, you know, that, that we'll never forget if we were old enough. And I thank you for, for your service Absolutely. to our country and, and just that sacrifice that your time and your energy and what you were willing to, you were willing to give up your life. And I appreciate thank that. It's been my privilege. It has been my honor. And and I am grateful for everyone that I have served with and those that I never even know that served before me and that will serve after me and who have endured so many more hardships and losses than I ever did. And the yeah. fact that we still have young Americans who are willing to step forward and, and take that oath right. is a huge piece of what gives me gives me hope. Yeah. So what do you do now? Um, how much longer were you in the military after that? So that was the very beginning of my career. I had, you know, a full career after that. I flew, I flew F-16s. We call them Vipers. I flew Vipers for another 10 years. At, you know, by then I was a single mom with two little girls and I just, I couldn't juggle everything anymore. Yeah. And so, um, you know, then I had to call the knock it off with my with my squadron commander. And I was fortunate enough that I had a commander on the other side of base that I had flown uh, F-16s with. And Woody had gone over to command the DV airlift squadron. And he called me up and said, hey, Lucky, I hear you're getting out of the jet. Come fly for me. So I got to fly Gulf Streams for another six years. And then nice. I finished up my um, career in, in the Pentagon. Yeah. So terrible. Um, that's, that's what I did in the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You have flown some very cool things. What would what would your favorite aircraft be that you have flown? You mean other than the let's one say, I'm flying? Let's today. say in the military and then let's <laughs> say let's say general aviation type things. Yeah, what's your well, favorite? Oh gosh. You know, that I everyone asks what's your favorite and it's such a hard question. It is. Um, not just, it's, it's not like being a parent and you're like, I love all my kids equally. It's like you have a unique connection to each and every one aircraft aircraft that you fly, right? Uh-huh. I loved the F-16. I mean, that is, every fighter pilot will tell you that their first jet is like their true love. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it's like your first love. It's like your first kiss. There's something so magical. But for the F-16, I mean, you, you became that airplane. Mm-hmm. You thought it, that jet did it. And it was... It was so physical, it was so visceral, and it was so intellectual. I mean, you were playing chess at 500 knots in 90s. I loved that jet. Yeah, yeah. I also loved flying the Gulfstream because, A, it had a flushing toilet. <laughs> <laughs> but it was also, for me, it was also, I, I really enjoyed the, uh, you know, using the flight management system and the electronics of how you manage the, because you flew the F-16 the whole time. There was no flight management system mm. in that jet. All the avionics in there were, were geared towards warfighting, not towards going from A to B and flying, you know, through turns and holding to intercept the RNAV GPS. None of that, right? Right. So yeah. I enjoyed learning that, and, and it was a different kind of flying that I just really enjoyed. My first airplane was my Taylor Craft, and I have to say, probably very similar to the F-16. I had a little Taylor Craft BC-12, <laughs> I paid more for her than she was worth, but she was worth every penny. <laughs> and if you imagine 
like a boy and his dog and they're the best of friends and they go on adventures together. That was me and my tea crate. Yeah. I just, you know, I flew her coast to coast. I had so much fun. Oh, that sounds um, so I, fun. Flown T6s. I raced jets at Reno. Um, I've had the privilege of flying a B-25, co-piloting a, a B-17. Um, you know, right now I've got a Stearman. I've got a Cessna 170. I just, I've been very fortunate to fly a number of airplanes not nearly as many as I would love. And I, and I, there's so many um, other women that have flown a gazillion more planes than I have. And I have so yeah. much admiration for their, for their knowledge, their skill set, their adaptability. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful for every opportunity I have and every chance I have to get yeah. airborne. There's one, like one of the things I always tell my boys and they're, you know, they're, they're like, Oh, I wish we had a bigger house like that or whatever. I'm like, you're always, gonna want some there's always gonna be someone that has more and there's gonna be someone that has less just be happy with what you have experienced mm-hmm. you know because you're never going it's never gonna it's always gonna be that way you know yeah I mean there's a certain amount of hunger I think that pushes us and that's and that's good yeah but don't you know like as you said don't forget to enjoy the present to enjoy the moment yeah. to really value what you have been gifted today Mm-hmm. you know so are your um are your husband or your kids into flying at all oh my gosh so this is so cool I mean <laughs> my daughters have never really expressed any interest in aviation at all yeah? huh. like you know you would think like I'm a really awesome fighter pilot right, <laughs> right. And they're like oh my gosh did you know that so-and-so's mom is like a a, a lawyer and I'm like that's pretty cool but yeah what, you know, like <laughs> they're used to you just being super cool anyways so they didn't know uh, we have to go to the airport again <laughs> right oh i hear the same things it's like really yeah yeah but the other week my my oldest daughter she's 16 years, years old she goes mom can i start taking flying lessons Ooh. So she and my husband have been getting up every morning and because um, I remarried uh, wonderful, Mr. Wonderful. He's so fabulous. Um, uh-huh. But they've been getting up every morning and doing ground school together. And so they, they go through it together. And then uh, she and I will do additional instruction in ground school. And she's been up for her first three flights. Wow. And she just is beaming. That's awesome. So what is she learning in? I'm, I'm interested to know what she's going to actually train in. So um, right now it's a combination of our 170 and then we've got another instructor on the airfield that's uh, also given her additional instruction in a 172 because, you know, it's the 170. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's a, so like a, like an initial solo kind of plane, but she, I mean, we have tail draggers. She's going to have to learn how to fly a tail dragger. I don't want to, I don't want to delay her progress to solo until she achieves that kind of proficiency. Because learning in a 170 is not like learning in a Cub or a Um, You know, it's got the spring gear. If you don't get it just right, like, every landing's a recovery. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The first time I flew a 170, I was, like, I was dead set. I was going to buy a 170. I was so excited. This is a beautiful 170 that I was flying with my CFI. And 
We did three landings. Thank goodness this was like a really long runway, but we like tried to land it and then it was terrible and then put some more power to it and did it again. I mean, like I was like, I give up. Like I was done. Oh, so man. I was like, oh, maybe I don't love the 170. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, lo- I love my 170. She is so, she is so fabulous. And, and she will perform amazing things for me. But I just, like I said, I mean, part of what my, the reason why right now we're kind of bouncing her between the two planes is I don't want to stall her progress yeah. towards her solo. Yeah. And I yeah. know that the 172 will, will accelerate that because keeping that sense of achievement mm-hmm. um, and momentum is really important to continuing to progress in, in your training. Exactly. Um, yeah. Is your husband a CFI? No, no. Okay. Do you have a good CFI that you, you want her to use when it gets to that point? Well, so I'm a CFI, and then also um, this fellow with the 172, he's a okay. CFI as well. Um, Do you think she'll take does... lessons from you very well? So we've actually already gone up a couple times, and she does okay. very well. Yeah, the dynamics okay. between us have worked out well so far. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You can separate the mom-daughter thing and be CFI and student? Uh, I think so, but also my style of being a CFI is much more of a coaching style. Oh. Um, as I just, I love, I love flying. I love sharing it with people. I love teaching. I demand precision and excellence, but I, you know, it's just, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who beats you and yells at you. That's just not my style. I hope that one day if I have kids that they're into it, but you can't force them into it as no. like said, you know, it's, it's not something you can force, but I think too, when you're, when you're born into an aviation family, like you had that like background it's just something that's kind of there and you might play with that idea and it's exciting, but and their friends might think it's cool, but they're like, eh, I don't care. But I've seen like my side of it where I was never around to airplanes and I hit aviation at 28 and I was like, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> like you think your dad had an airplane and you didn't even want to fly it. Like what's wrong? I know that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what I love the most about it is now that she's actually gone up for a couple of flights, how much she just beams from the inside. She's like, I could actually, I actually controlled the airplane. She took off today. She did a takeoff uh-huh. today, but with, 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 in the 172. Yeah. And the fact that she controlled the airplane, she had the power, the confidence that that's beginning to instill in her. Totally. I already see how she's becoming the person that she's meant to be. I mean, there's just something. And I think we all share this experience, right? There's something transformative about aviation. Right. It, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You well, know, how fun that you get to experience that with your daughter. And I'm assuming, have you ever had any other students as a CFI? Um, yeah, I have. Yeah. I, so, I, I, did, I did some work um, at, a, at a local flight school for a while. And again, yeah. I thought I just loved it. <laughs> and yeah. And when you solo for the first time, you're like, yes. I can imagine that'd be very re- rewarding to see him and go through that process with them, just watch them change, you know? Yeah. You know, I wish that, um, you know, our pilot culture, because I think our pilot community is so geared towards feeding the airlines yeah. that we've actually done ourselves, our community a disservice because we treat being a CFI as if like that, those are your slave years, you know, right. um, to, to use a, a poor analogy, but, but you're poor, you're, you're, you're just working like a dog you get taken for granted and you're not actually there to enjoy it and to enjoy it, to value 
that you're really helping someone achieve their dreams, that you're passing on this really special kind of knowledge in a way that is very much life and death. And it's, we, we don't treat our young survivors with the kind of, of honor and respect that we, sh- that we really should. And so once they leave that, that, that training ground where they're training other people, but they're also earning their own experience or earning their hours for them, they're just like, I got to, I got to plug my logbook till I get my ATP and they never want to look back. Right. They have such negative experiences of their time teaching. Yeah. I wish as a community would fit, we could figure out how to shift that paradigm Mm -hmm. and really value our CFIs because that's really how we're going to, how we're going to begin regrowing our pilot population. If we can value our CFIs for really the the Jedi masters that they are. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, that's what's going to get people super excited about flying. That's really what's going to make our 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 new our newly certificated private pilots get them better airmanship, get them hunger for you know hungry for more, get more people to complete their training. Right? Yeah. That's what pulls me to actually want to become a CFI. Is I don't want to be an hour. You know, I don't want to build hour. I do want to build hours, but. I would do it for the sole purpose of seeing other people enjoy it as I do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I feel like I'm the person that, oh, I can't charge somebody because I just love it so much. <laughs> I need this next generation. And I think that's part of why we do what we do. And, you know, just talking about it to other people and letting them know that, you know, the airlines isn't the only thing you can go into with aviation, there's so much more to it. And I love it just because, you know, you said that your daughter's like beaming kind of, you know, it's like, I've never had a more proud moment in my life than finishing my pilot license. And I mean, you know, people thought I was cool because I got my pilot license, but I was just like, I could do anything in the world. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. You know, when you're in high school, you have like sports, but it's a team sport and you succeeded and you got a trophy. But but when you become a pilot, it's just like this. I can do anything in the entire world. Yeah. 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 So if I could give that like joy to one person, people, one person. Right. They worth it. You know, if I could describe aviation, like getting your private pilot license, it's about empowerment. Mm-hmm. become yeah. empowered yeah and that just I, I love seeing that yeah so that brings me to another um sort of thing that you and I have talked about a little project that you as uh, kind of near and dear to your heart and something that you really want to work on and talk to me a little bit about with EAA what um what your role is what you're doing what what you're really passionate about like right now maybe for this next kind of chapter in aviation oh yeah Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about this. Um, so I serve on the board of directors uh, for the Experimental Aircraft Association. And on, on the board, they've asked me to be the chair for their Women's Source Society, which is a women's giving circle um, intended to raise funds to, to help uh, female pilots, whether or not that's additional training or um, initial training. And we're not yet ready to announce our big initiative, but if I get everyone every, you know, so excited about what we're what our big reveal is going to be, we are really looking at how we can rejuvenate and reinvigorate aviation, but specifically general aviation uh, with female pilots. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
I wish I, I could say specific. more because I'm so excited about it. And, and yeah. Natalie, you and Alyssa are going to be big parts of this. I'm, I just <laughs> I, I can't yeah. wait. But let's do another podcast when we finally got when we're finally ready to to pull the sheets back yeah. and have the big yeah. deal. <laughs> well, you don't have to you don't have to reveal anything specific about that. But talk about what what it is you're passionate about with women getting in aviation aside from the EAA board that you're on. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's part of what I love about about why and why I'm excited to bring more women into aviation is is everything that we've been talking about earlier. I, I love empowering women through flight to, to see how, like, for example, my daughter or other students, how they just blossom and grow and begin to believe in themselves. It's like it's like you can see their heart and their soul begin to expand and not just fill their body, but become bigger than their body. And they suddenly realize they can do anything. They can achieve okay. all of their dreams. And there's yeah. something that's so empowering about flight. Plus, just the sheer joy. So to, to, to increase the number of women in aviation, to build our communities, to strengthen our community. And because we love aviation. We love flying. I have not met a pilot that hasn't been like an instant friend, right? Mm, right. Well, okay, let's be honest. There's, there's, like, there's a couple out there I've had some <laughs> There's always a few. Yes. There's always a few. Always a few. But but we have such a fabulous community. And there's something special, though, about when you meet another female pilot, when you meet an, another girl pilot, chick pilot, it's there is a bond that is fundamentally different among us that is so, um, so inspiring, so fulfilling, so nurturing, so supportive uh, that I just want more of that. And if I can help contribute to our broader mission of bringing more women into aviation so we can have more girlfriends to go fly with, yeah, uh, there's just more fun to be had. So yeah, that's yeah. that's something that I'm, I'm currently super passionate about. Yeah. Well, me too, just a little I bit. Know. <laughs> I know. That's, that's well, one of the reasons why I just, I, I reached out to you and I just, I have so much, so much adoration and, and admiration for everything that you two are doing. Well, thank you. Uh, that's sweet. Let me know, too. You know, if there's anything you want me to do, I'm, I'm willing to help out in any way because, yeah, I do want more women to, women to get into it. Whether they want to go to the airlines or not, it's still yeah. such a great thing to be involved in for a variety of reasons. Yeah, well, helping and helping any way that I can get anybody started and um, I still have to, like, announce my scholarship stuff coming out, but Oh, it's so much. <laughs> no, well, but 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 what you ladies are doing is so important, right? Because we need to we need to show we need to be out there and be role models. We need to be out there on social media. We need to be on the YouTubes and the podcasts and the Instagrams and the Facebooks. And we need to be everywhere that we know women are, especially young women. And if you think mm -hmm. about remember it's a long time for me to think back to my 20s. Like, that's way too long that I want to admit. But <laughs> and every generation every generation is a little bit different. But the 20s is, is the same, where you're trying to figure out who you are and and you're oh, struggling to overcome. You, you're confident because you're, you're, you, you've just left the nest, but at the same time, you have some insecurities. And, and you're just developing who you're going to be. And aviation, flying, and being empowered just through, through what – you have to struggle with the journey it t requires you to go through to master those skills. 
is something that these young women need. And frankly, it's the funness, the adventure, the joy, the excitement. I mean, all the, the new experiences. It's So being on those social media, reaching out to that demographic, showing them that they can, and showing them how fun it is and the community that we have, the girlfriend relationships that we have, the adventures that we go on, the role modeling that the two of you have done has just been absolutely fantastic. And so thank you. Keep it up. Don't stop. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I have no intention of stopping. <laughs> I know. It. I, I, know it. I just feel like it's our duty to be that positive light, to show them this light that we have. I mean, when Natalie and I were in, I think maybe when we were in St. Louis, we were talking about it, how, you know, you have these instant friends with aviation, but now you know, friendships that you have, like you have your best friends from high school, you have your best friends from now in life. But I think when you have somebody that connects with you through aviation and you can talk about your real life, like it's just this insane, like nobody else gets me. Nobody gets it unless <laughs> they're in this, you know, and I'm like, why doesn't everybody want this? Like, it, it's not the adventure. It's not the traveling. It's, it's something bigger. It's something that's made me feel proud. Just stand taller in a room. You know, it's, it's awesome. So yeah. I'm very thankful to be amongst you women. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, I get, I learned so much from you. I learn. I, I'm, I always get so inspired and energized and, and you ladies just, you fill my soul. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Thank you for coming on. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we say goodnight? Uh, no, love to you all. And I can't wait to chat with you guys again. Yeah, I'm going to be heading over the D.C. area in the next month or so. So I am going to be calling you so that Do we can go flying know. together in that 170. Right. You can, you can have the 170 all day. I'm <laughs> Melissa, you're going to hurt her feelings if you keep talking like that. <laughs> Before we go, uh, what, what engine do you have on the Stearman? Uh, we've got a Lycoming R680. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it took me a little while to make friends with the Lycoming because I just, we, it took us a little while to dial in the distributors. Sure. But once we, once we, uh, Mike Porter really, uh, he, he takes care of our airplanes. He is just a genius when it comes to, to steermans and, and older aircraft. He dialed in that engine for us and now it is so smooth. It is, she is a little go machine. She just well, loves the fly. The fly is only like an hour from me. So, I mean, you should probably bring it. <laughs> I mean, I'll fly to DC and fly it out for you. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh well thank you heather again for coming on i really appreciate it i can't wait to chat with you some more and um cheers to both of you cheers thank you thanks cheers. for coming to this episode of cockpits and cocktails and we will see you next time You've been listening to Cockpits and Cocktails with your hosts Natalie Flygirl Kelly and Fly Alyssa. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time for a lively discussion on aviation, aerospace, the air travel industry, and all things flight related. Aerospace and the air travel industry. Let it go to my head, I